Okay, good. Thank you so much. You're kind. Um, we have been studying. We started a study a couple weeks ago. Um, well, we've been studying the patriarchs. And we got last week to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to do a little review for some of you that weren't here. And since we have a few visitors this morning, that'll kind of encapsulate us into where we are. So we were talking about Moses. Dr. Dan brought us in uh, two weeks ago into the life of Moses, took us up through the first 80 years of his, uh, of his life. And we get to this place um, where, where he took them up, getting ready to leave the, the, the land of uh, Egypt and come into, well, on the road to the promised land. So here's what we see. Here's this uh, map that shows you that they left up the Nile Delta there and they came all the way down and the lowest part of that red line is Mount Sinai. And when they came to Mount Sinai, they stopped there. 1.5 million people approximately. All of them encamped around this mountain. They were just slaves. They had had all kinds of things to happen to them on the way, including having to battle a nation that was very good. They were very good soldiers. And these were just slaves. They had no training to be soldiers. And, and, and God helped them, deliver them. And, and they went through the area where the water was just horrible. It was bitter. And, and God healed the waters and made the waters clean again. And they got where they didn't have food to eat. So what did God do? He sent them manna. Manna. That's a God, isn't it? Sending you manna every day. And then they weren't happy with the manna. And they said, it's not good enough for us to eat bread. Where's the meat? Or as Wendy's used to say, where's the beef? Right? And so he, he didn't send beef, but he sent quail. So they had quail and manna. And, and man, that, that, must have been, that must have been awesome. You get up in the morning, you collect your manna for the day. Yes, it just must be nice, God providing all that kind of stuff there. And, well, they're camped out at the bottom of the mountain. Remember, that's where Moses first got his call. He had to take his shoes off because he was standing on holy ground right there at the base of that mountain and, and at the burning bush. And God said, uh, or he said to God, who shall I say sent me? And they said, well, tell them Jehovah, Yahweh, the I am sent you, right? And so he went back. I am that I am is what Yahweh means. And, and what does that really refer to? Well, the beauty of it, and I won't go into detail, but the beauty of it is it doesn't say I was because that would have limited him to the past. He didn't say I will be because that would have limited him to the future. But I am means in whatever time, in whatever space, in whatever condition, in whatever territory, wherever I am. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Well, that I am God told Moses, bring my people out. And he didn't give him much more instruction than that yet. And Moses came and they didn't need any cloud or pillar yet because Moses knew exactly where he was going when he left Egypt. I'm going back to the mountain of God. Now, and I also told you last week that Mount Sinai on one side is known as Sinai. On the other side, it's known as Horeb. So it's the same mountain. Just those who look at it from this side call it Horeb. Those who look at it from this side call it Sinai. 
So they came down to Mount Sinai and Moses told the people, he said, uh, I'm going up to the mountain. I'll be back. So he went up and talked to God. And, and remember, God gave him instructions. He said, you tell the people to clean up themselves three days. They are to wash their clothes. They are to wash their bodies. They are to purify their minds. They are not to have sexual relationships with one another. And after the three days, I'm going to talk to them. So Moses went down and he told the people. Moses was the first AT&T. He collected information from God and he told the people. He took the information from the people back to God. He was like the telephone service, right? And so he told the people what God said and the people cleansed themselves. They purified themselves. And, and all of a sudden on the third day at the right time, the mountain began to rumble. And when the mountain rumbled, everything shook. And a cloud gathered around that mountain. It said the cloud around the mountain was like the smoke coming out of a, uh, a firing furnace where they fire brick. Now these people knew brick, right? They've been making brick down in, down in Egypt. They knew this. So, so they put those brick in there and they had straw in there. And when that straw would burn, the smoke would just billow out of those things. And that mountain was covered in this smoke. And then all of a sudden, the rumbling and the smoke, all of a sudden they heard a shofar, a ram's horn. And it started lightly and grew and grew and grew in its intensity. The people were scared to death. And Moses said, time to go. And he began to march up to the mountain. Well, the people marched with him for a way. And then when he got closer to the mountain, by the way, God did give this instruction. He said, nobody's to touch the mountain. Tell them not to go beyond the border here. This, this right here, nobody's to touch the base of the mountain. They stay off the mountain because that's holy ground. That's where I am. They'll die. And so Moses told them, now here it is. These people already know if we touch the mountain, we die. There's smoke billowing out. There's this rumbling and there's this great... Sound of the shofar that's... Well, I know that's probably not a shofar, but you get the understanding. It just about shakes your world when it happens. And Moses goes right up to the edge of the mountain. He goes up and the people are standing back just kind of watching in amazement. And all of a sudden, God spoke. And all the people heard these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Let me ask you a question. When God says to you, Bob, I am the Lord, your God, that brought you out of. You probably don't say Egypt. But every single one of you have an Egypt. Every single one of you have a place in your life that you have been where there was utter hopelessness and destruction. Where you wanted to get out of it with all of your strength and all of your might and your begging and pleading. Deliver me! 
Some of you didn't even know what to call God when you asked him to deliver you from the hospital bed. But he knew where you were. If you haven't heard her story, you need to have her tell you sometime. It'll shake your world. It'll rock your world. She didn't even know who God was. Called on his name and she said, I don't know if you're Jesus or a God or whoever you are. I just want you to heal me. I'll serve you. That's an Egypt experience. You understand? All of us have been in Egypt. And he said, I am the Lord who brought you out of that place. And I brought you out of slavery. I brought you out of stuff that destroyed you, that was destroying you, that was binding you, that was hurting you. And it doesn't matter what it was. Maybe for some of you it was addiction. Maybe it was the destruction of life. Maybe it was just sin. But whatever it was, you were in slavery. And when God said that, the people stepped back. Not that they... Not that they didn't appreciate this God who had brought them out of slavery. They were scared to death. I think I would have been too. I mean, right now, uh, I'm in a real good relationship with God. But I was here on Friday and Saturday doing during this prayer and fasting thing. And I think if the place would have started to shake and the smoke would have started to come down from the roof and all of a sudden I'd have heard the sound of a shofar in this place, I think I'd have been going, where is the exit? Well, they didn't quite do that, but they were stepping back. It shocked them so much that after God finished giving them the commandments, they told Moses, look, you go talk to God and bring back what he says, we'll do it. They were scared. And you know what? I think we miss that in our society today, specifically in the church world. I think we miss an awesome respect for a powerful, mighty, great, and marvelous creator God who is the El Shaddai. He is the, the all-powerful one, but he also is the, the nurturing one. Sustain. I think most of us like to embrace that sustaining one, that nurturing one. But we try not to really think about that all-powerful, this terrible God. But He is a terrible God. If you don't believe me, continue in your sins and wait till you stand before Him one day. Because He says to us, if we have sin in our life when we stand before Him, He will say to us, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't want to hear that. I would rather hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Well, after he announced who he was, he immediately started with ten commandments. Now, the ten commandments are, are a little unusual in the way of commandments. There are a bunch of laws that have been put in place. I told you last week that we had ceremonial laws. We, we have moral laws, which are commandments, like the Ten Commandments. We have ceremonial laws, which are things that teach us how to do something. And then we have civil law, which deals with our relationship with one another. So a moral law basically keeps us in right relationship with God and in right relationship with one another from a strictly moral perspective. 
A, a civil law is, is more instructive than that. It says that if I got $20 worth of services from Bob, that I need to pay Bob $20. Ceremonial law helps me understand who it is that I'm worshiping and how he likes to be worshipped. And there was a bunch of ceremonial law. We'll talk more about that as we go through this. But I just want you to know that the Ten Commandments were moral laws. And the first law that he gave them, you shall have no other gods before me, is the keynote. It is the, it is the, it's the fulcrum on which everything else stands. I am the Lord. I am God. And you will not, if you want to serve me, you can have no other God but me. And we talked about that last week. We talked about how that, how that idea of having another God before the face means that we've brought something else into a relationship that is detrimental to God's relationship with us and ours to Him. God's. And we looked at what we looked at what Luther said. We looked at what Matthew Henry said about anything that came into our lives that inhibited or was a barrier for our relationship with God was either a God or an idol. Now, we don't, we don't talk about idols much anymore. We're going to get to them in just a minute. But we do understand what, what a God is. God is something that we worship. You know what worship is? Worship is surrendering to that thing or that person. Some of us don't know that we're worshiping something else. But we are bound, for instance, to public opinion. And we worship. Well, I can't do that because what do they say? Well, I, you know, really, I'd like to, but what, what will my friends say? What will my family say? You see, what we've just done is we've taken something that we've placed it in front of God. We've said, this thing has more importance than what God does in my life. Now, I'm not telling you what your God is, but if there's anything in your life that prevents you from doing or being all that God wants you to be, it has become for you a God. Thank you, Bob. I heard that one. Anything in your life that prevents you from being all that God wants you to be has become for you a God. The children of Israel also had the Shema, which helped them understand who this God was. And, and, and what we found out as we read this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We found out as we looked at that along with the first commandment and what God said to them when he first came in was that these four things are true. There is one, only one, creator God. Did you know that every other God that exists has been created? 
You can't find another God that has not been, that has not, not been created. That's a noble negative. There is only one God. Oh, but pastor, my friend, she, she worships Buddha. And it's really the same thing. No, it isn't. You see, my God created the people who created her God. But they worship this, this Allah of Muhammad. I'm sorry, but that God's attributes and characteristics are not the attributes and characteristics of my God. Oh no, but you don't understand. He's a Hindu. I mean, there are many gods for him. Okay. Little G-O-D-S. I can get that. But I have and worship the one true God who was the true God of Israel. They didn't always serve him. And sadly to say, I have not always in my life served him. But I... Am today following after this one true God. And I desire that he be evident in my life. The second thing. He is God and God alone. He will not share the stage with anybody. He is a jealous God. Bobby Joe and I. When we first got together, her grandmother had married a man who was extremely jealous, but he was psychotically jealous. I mean, and she will tell you, her grandmother, and he, he, was, he was so jealous of his wife that he wouldn't let her go to church. He wouldn't go with her and he wouldn't let her go. And she lived for many years raising her kid, teaching the word, submitting herself to the authority of her husband because she felt like God wanted her to do that so that she may win him. And on his deathbed, he gave his heart to Jesus. But this was years worth of living in submission to this man who was so jealous of her even going to church, he was afraid somebody, including the pastor, might hit on her. And so Bobby Joe with me, she was always... You know, what's this story with, with being jealous? And, and, you know, I may mention it one time. She, she was going somewhere. We weren't yet married. Of course, we only had 30 days between the time we met until we got engaged and another, you know, 60 days before we finally got married. So there wasn't a whole lot of time in there for us to investigate this. But she was getting ready to go to this, to this time to sing with this guy for an event that she had to go to. And he had been a worship pastor with her and and she went in and I said, I'm not comfortable with you going into a room by yourself with this guy. Oh, I know you love me. I know that I trust you 100%. But there's something about me that says, hold on just a minute. I'm getting ready to make you my wife. I don't want to share. She said, you're jealous and this is going to destroy us. And I'm like, God is jealous. God doesn't share your attention with another God. He will either be Lord of your life or He will not be in your life. Ooh. 
Hello? Third thing. He is one in his deity. By that I mean, we talk about Jesus, we talk about the Holy Spirit, and we talk about God the Father. All three of them are one. Now, let me tell you something. We live in a world where we can only think in this dimension here. Dimensions one, one through three. But we, we have no idea what dimension five, six, seven, and eight is. Did you know that God is not limited by time? So God can be here in the yesterday and in the tomorrow all at the same time. And he is not limited by space. So he can be both here and there. And he's only one. So why is it then so hard for us to grasp the fact that the Father can be the Son and the Son can be the Father and the Spirit can be the Father and the Father can be the Spirit not in role but in deity. Some of your wheels are churning. I see them. I understand that. That's okay. I'm not asking you to comprehend it all because there are things about the Father that I don't comprehend. You know what? He wouldn't be much of a God if I could comprehend Him. Number four. He must be number one. My batteries are dead. Let me grab the blue microphone. Turn me off. He must be number one. He will not take Second place in your life. He will not share number one place. Hello. Y'all understand something? Your relationship with the pastor is not your relationship with God. Your relationship to the church is not your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is the only thing that you should put in the number one spot. Now, there are times that as a pastor, I have to lay down my role as a pastor and go be grandpa. Right? Y'all let me do that two weeks ago. Thank you. I got a second grandbaby due sometime in August. Lord willing, I'll go see him. I won't, hopefully, I won't have to miss a Sunday service. But the Lord willing, I'm going to go miss, or not him, her. I'm going to go visit her when she's born. I will lay down for a moment my role as a pastor, and I will go do that because in that moment, that will become more important than my role as pastor. And I got all you wonderful people back here helping me do this. It's just, it's a no-brainer. Because I'm working in a church that started out with 12 I have to work apart from my pastoral ministry. So the days that I do that, guess what? I lay down my role as a pastor and I go teach people how to be leaders, how to be CEOs of companies, how to sell, how to be a team. And I enjoy it. I'm not complaining about my role as pastor bivocational. I actually think it's a real good thing if most pastors were bivocational. I think for the most part, pastors have disconnected from the world in which they live. And I think it's important that we stay connected. 
But here's the thing. While we can lay down our different roles and our different relationships and sometimes put this on the back burner until we come back to this. You know, I was a missionary for several years in South America, Peru and Bolivia. And I traveled about um, about half of the year. A little over half of the year. There were many nights that I would come in Drop one suitcase off, pick up the other one, and leave. And some of those nights were nights that my kids had birthdays. Now, what I would have to do with my kids is say, I know I have this district assembly that I need to go chair over here in this district. When would you rather celebrate your birthday? Before I leave or when I get back? You understand that? Sometimes... Even the people that we love, even the relationships that we have everywhere else have to be put on the back burner. But here's one that can never be put on the back burner. Your relationship with God must always be active and it must always be first. He will not share second place in your life. I have spent a long time on this introduction and now I'm moving on down to the second commandment, which is where we're going to go. Here's what he says. You shall, now this is God still speaking after he's given them the first commandment. No other gods before me, no other gods before my face. I must be the one and only God in your life. Now you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters below. You, not, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God punishing the children for the sins of the parents. To the third. Y'all listening? We haven't got this as a nation yet. We haven't picked up that we're laying it on our kids and our grandkids. And our great grandkids. But we need to understand this in the church. If there is sin in our lives, it's going to affect this, the next, the next, the next generation. Somebody was telling me the other day. My father was an alcoholic. I'm not. My kids were alcoholics. Their kids aren't. We're worried about the grandkids. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? You understand that the stuff that you're embracing, the stuff that you're sticking under the mattress, the stuff that you're participating in that is destroying you is not just destroying you, it's destroying your family. Second, third, fourth generation. Of those who hate me. What do you say hate me? I don't hate God. If you put anything before God. You are showing God you hate him. Let me say that again. If you put anything else before your relationship with God. You are saying I love something more than you. Therefore at times I hate you. But I'm showing love to a 
thousand generations of those who love me. I like that math. Second, third, and fourth generations of those who hate me, but those who love me are going to be blessed for a thousand generations. Now that does not guarantee that all of your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren are going to be in heaven. Everyone has a choice. But you know that lady that I was telling you about, my wife's grandmother? She lived to be 100.5 years old. She On her 100th birthday, now her husband died when he was 57 years old. This was shortly after the last son was born. On her 100th anniversary, her whole family was there. And you could count on two hands the number of them. And there was a huge picture, over 100 of them there. You could count on two hands the number that were not presently in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And do you know why grandma said that was the case? Because she put him first and submitted herself in order that they might be saved. You see, that's the blessing moving forward to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, let me take you back to what he talks about, about the image. Okay? You shall not make an image. Anybody made any images lately? I don't see any hands. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you about an image. You don't have to do it with your hands. You can do it in your mind. This this literally is the very definition of an idol. Something that we have created that we can worship. Is that sitting crossways? In your receptor. Let me just tell you this. If you have a dream. If you have a desire. If you have a wish for something. That is not subjected. Or submitted to Christ. It can become an image. An idol. Oh but pastor I really want that boat. I know. Or I really want my vacation home. I know. I really want to retire at 59. I understand. But if any of that becomes an image that takes the place of your relationship with God or an image that you worship, it's an idol. I was blown off my seat when I began to study this in more detail and realize that the very definition of the word idol had within it our imagination. I mean, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If we're going to put something in wood, we have to imagine what it looks like first. And they were looking at something to... To bring the rains, to give the nice sunshine, 
to keep the wind at bay, to help them have children. You know, all the stuff that God does that they didn't know God. And that's what they did back in Egypt. And that's what the lands around them were doing. And God said, "Huh, uh with me, I am your God. I will be the only God. Don't make anything that looks like me. Or that you think looks like something else that you want to worship. I will have no other gods with me. Let's go to the third one. <clears throat> you shall not misuse. Y'all know what the King James says? Take the name of your Lord in vain. Do you know what the word vain means? In vain? It means misuse it. It means use it where it's not necessary. Did you know that the children of Israel were so careful with the name of God that they didn't even say it? They would use a replacement term like the Lord for Yahweh. And when they wrote it, they didn't have any vowels in it. Do you know why? Because the name of the Lord was to be cherished. Let me tell you something. My mom's here today, and I'm so glad to have her. And she trained me well. We were not not only not allowed to use the name of the Lord in vain, but we weren't able to even modify the name of God and use it in a way such as gosh or golly. Because my mom said, nuh-uh, that's too close to the real thing. You're not doing that. Now, my kids, some of their neighboring friends and stuff used it, and they came home and used it in my house. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't do that. Do what, Daddy? Because they'd heard it over there so much. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's, that's just a modified version of God's name. We don't use it in vain. We don't use it in a misuse territory. He said he's not going to hold us guiltless if we use his name in the wrong way. Sometimes we hear people say, by God, I'm going to do that. Uh, You may want to say, if God wills, I'm going to do that because we find that that's scriptural. But you can't use his name in vain. Matter of fact, he tells us not just not to use his name, but don't use his creation in vain. Don't use the name of his creation. What in the world are you doing? I use that sometimes and I have to stop myself. So, oh, it's not really what I wanted to do. See, the reason that he told them not to misuse his name was because he wanted them to hold him in reverence. He is an awesome, terrible God. I think if God met you like he met them and started the fire on the mountain and the smoke billowing out and you heard the sound of that shofar and you heard his name and saying, Do not use my name in vain. You'd probably say, Hmm, I better be careful about that. I have pet peeves. And and some of them have to do with the continual use of his name, even when we're talking to him. And I know some of us get into routines in the way that we pray and the things that we say. But um, I, I I have friends. I have one lady who calls him Abba, which is father. But she overuses it, in my opinion. 
Aba this, aba that, aba that, aba the other, aba the other, aba the other. And by the time she gets done, I'm thinking of a Swedish band. <laughs> the, the ABBA, the Swedish band, you know, some of you who live back in the 70s understand what I'm talking about. Anyway, the, the, the idea of this is not to, not to repeat something so frequently, to, re, to misuse it, to destroy it, to cause people to think lightly of it. Some of the old timers would not even put their hand on the Bible in the court of law and use his name because they said, I'm not to swear by him. I'm not to swear by this. And if they would tell the judge what they were doing, the judge would let them just affirm to tell the truth. Because anybody who's willing to stand up and say, I'm not going to do that on the Bible or I'm not going to do that in God's name is probably not going to risk telling a lie and having God punish them. So that was number three. Number four is this. And I'm going to stop on four so you don't have to get worried. Because the first four have to do with our relationship up. The next six have to do with the relationships out here. Did you know that eight of the ten are in the negative format? You can't, you shouldn't, you won't, don't, no, right? Only two of them are in the positive format. One of them is this one. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Keep going. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter or your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now let me tell you something. Uh, Commentators who read this word are often asking themselves, Is this a moral law or is this a ceremonial law? What does it mean? For the children of Israel, it certainly meant these things exactly. Because here's what he wanted them to do. They worked in a country where every day was the same. They worked seven days a week. They produced bricks. They did things. And God said, you need to rest. Did you know that doctors will tell us that when we push our bodies for more than seven days or more than six days on doing something, that our bodies do not reboot themselves? And there have been many studies to that effect. If we can take off every seventh day and rest, we're renewed and ready for the next week. Did you know life is about cycles? I know some of you think motorcycles. Some of you think bicycles. But what I'm talking about are the cycles of life. You know, we all understand when we observe the Sabbath that God has brought a certain pattern to our world. And you know, he didn't give the priests off. He didn't tell them they couldn't work. Matter of fact, they had one of the hardest jobs there was on Sunday. I have a very hard job on Sundays. If you've ever been a pastor, you know that preaching a message and and laboring in this and preparing that 
whole thing on a Sunday morning, the attitude and the spirit that you get in, when you get done, it feels like you've worked an eight-hour day. I don't complain. I'm happy for it. I love doing what I do. But what I'm telling you is, it's not that we're not working. So what does it mean? There were two things that he asked them to do. One was to rest. Rest because God showed you that you needed rest. Does God need rest? No. But he rested to demonstrate to us that our bodies needed rest. The second thing that he teaches us is that this is a day that our minds are to drift more toward him than at any other time during the week. We should be contemplating him. We should be planning to worship him. We should be planning to come into his presence and spend time with him. It should be a different day than Monday through Saturday. Amen? And you do that. You're here. Thank you. But we can take this, we can take a lot of things out of proportion in life. There were a lot of ceremonial laws attached to this. A matter of fact, either 39 or 59 of their thousand laws that they had in, in their ceremonial law system were attached to the Sabbath. Like how far you could walk, right? And you remember the Pharisees, they had that, you can only walk a mile from your property, so what would they do? They'd put all their coats on and they'd walk a mile and they'd drop a coat off. And they'd walk another mile and they'd drop a coat off. And they'd walk another mile and they'd drop a coat off. And, and they did it so that they could abide by the letter of the law. And it was the principle of the law that God really wanted them to get. This is not about you can't walk more than a mile. It's about remember me. Remember my day. Remember this time. This is a holy day. A day that I want. To spend with you. And I want you to spend with me. Alright. I know I've gone over my time. I'm sorry. Here's what I want you to know. All of these things that God has told us. In these first four commandments. Are to bring us into a place. Where we can look directly into the face of God. Where we can develop the intimacy of relationship. To say. I love God. I want to have a relationship with Him. I don't want anything in my mind to be built that isn't other than Him. I want His personal relationship with me. I don't want to use His name in vain. I don't want to be doing something that brings Him disservice or dishonor. I want to glorify Him in my life. And I certainly don't want to take a day that He has set aside for us to have a date and throw it away on doing something that I think I need to do because I really don't trust him enough to rest. Dottie Rambo wrote a song quite a few years ago. It goes like this. Sunday is Father's Day. I must give him my best. Bow to his wishes and grant his request. For he is my father, and this is his day. This Sunday, next Sunday, and a million Sundays away. For my father is very special, 
And each day I love him more. He's a king, he owns a mansion. Maybe you've met him before. By the way, his name is Jesus. And this is his day. This Sunday, next Sunday, and a million Sundays away. So, thank you. Here's why I pray, I, I sang that song. This is Father's Day. The things that we've talked about have been about honoring our Father. Have been about listening to our Father. Have been about obeying our Father. So this Father's Day, go in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ.